Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 34, Daniel chapter 12, the end of the book of Daniel. Well, as I mentioned, today we're going to bring the book of Daniel to a close. And the good news for me is that I have a chance to speak to you from my heart about the practical effects of what it is we've learned. You know, it's been a long journey for what is but a 12-chapter book. However, if the latter days and the end times are important to us, and they ought to be, then it was necessary to discover that there are some significant differences between what the Daniel scriptures actually say versus what many prophecy teachers and novelists claim about Daniel and what many denominational end times doctrines have determined that we ought to be looking for in the coming months and years. I think it has been equally important to uncover and bring to the light of day the disturbing truth about what the modern view of the most influential segment of Bible academics is regarding Daniel, that it's a fraud. And how these scholars arrived at that conclusion. And how this view has become commonplace at many mainstream seminaries and Bible colleges. But even more importantly, what it means for most of the New Testament if that viewpoint is accepted and upheld. And what it means is that Christ, who quotes Daniel by name and identifies himself as Daniel's son of man, well, Christ was either deceived or he used a known fraudulent document to further his own cause. Either way, the basis for Christianity is shattered. And that essentially is the goal of these particular Bible academics, who on the one hand call themselves Christians, but on the other hand admit they do not accept the supernatural, the divine, or miracles, or predictive prophecy. I've coined a term for folks like that. I call them Jesusites. I'm not going to sit by and allow them to take on the mantle of Christian. They don't get to do that freely. At least not without a challenge. Because they diminish those of us who depend on Yeshua's divine nature and His supernatural forgiveness. They do believe that a great Jewish prophet and humanitarian named Jesus lived and that he formulated a marvelous pacifist philosophical system of living based on universal love. But they do not believe that he is God because there is no God. And therefore Jesus is certainly no Messiah. There's no need for a Messiah. And therefore, the whole point of a Messiah is that it's just an archaic remnant of Jewish folklore. So what we decide about the book of Daniel has far-reaching repercussions from testing the validity of the New Testament to the authenticity of Christ to whether Daniel is a window of knowing the future or is it but a Middle Eastern fairy tale and what we decide about Daniel even extends to our own relationship with God let's reread Daniel chapter 12 to begin today Daniel chapter 12. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1116. 12th chapter of Daniel, verse 1. 
when that time comes, Michael, the great prince who champions your people will stand up and there will be a time of distress unparalleled between the time they became a nation and that moment. At that time, your people will be delivered. Everyone whose name is found written in the book. Many of those sleeping in the dust of the earth will awaken, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and abhorrence. But those who can discern will shine like the brightest of heaven's dome. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep these words secret. Seal up the book until the time of the end. Many will rush here and there as knowledge increases. Then I, Daniel, looked and I saw in front of me two others, one on this bank of the river and the other on its other bank. And one of them asked the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river, How long will these wonders last? The man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river raised his right and left hands towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and a half. And that it will be when the power of the holy people is no longer being shattered that all of these things will end. I heard this, but I couldn't understand what it meant. So I asked, Lord, what will be the outcome of all this? But he said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are to remain secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will purify, cleanse, and refine themselves, but the wicked will keep on acting wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those with discernment will understand. From the time the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed will be anyone who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But you go your way until the end comes. Then you will rest and rise for your reward at the end of days. You wouldn't think so, but verse 1 consists of several topics. And each one is interpreted a number of ways and each has significance in how one views the future, in some cases the past. For instance, the opening words are, when that time comes. So the obvious question is, what time is that? Well, we discussed this last week, so this will be just a brief review. The modern Bible academia usually says that this is actually referring to the past. During the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, around 165 B.C. But another and different common interpretation is that it is an unknown time in the future and in addition it represents a hard break between verse 1 of chapter 12 and what we previously read in chapter 11. However, that interpretation is almost exclusively due to the mirage that's created by the chapter markers that separates the final words of chapter 11 from the first words of chapter 12. Even competent Christian scholars sometimes overlook that originally Daniel, as were most of the Old Testament books, but one long continuous scroll. There were no breaks. So it is best to understand that when that time comes is connected to the final events of chapter 11, generally from verse 40 to the end of the chapter. And it reads like this. If we turn back to Daniel 11, starting in verse 40. When the time for the end comes, the king of the south will push at him, and the king of the north will attack him like a whirlwind with chariots, cavalry, and a large navy. 
He will invade countries, overrun them, and move on. He will also enter the land of glory, and many countries will come to grief, but these will be saved from his power, Edom, Moab, and the people of Ammon. He will reach out his hand to seize other countries too. The land of Egypt won't escape. He will control the treasures of gold and silver as well as everything else in Egypt of value. Put in Ethiopia will be subject to him. However, news from the east and the north will frighten him so that he moves out in great fury to ruin and completely do away with many. Finally, when he pitches the tents of his palace between the seas and the mountain of the holy glory, he will come to his end with no one to help him. Some scholars who accept this same understanding will try to get even more specific and they will say that when that time comes is directly connected then to Daniel 11.40 where it says when the time for the end comes. And that is because the word time, eighth, eighth in Hebrew is used in both verses. For me, that's an unneeded stretch. Others say it refers to the verse immediately preceding Daniel 12.1, which is Daniel 11.45, and there it speaks of this unnamed king, pretty sure it means the Antichrist, establishing his residence between the seas and the mountain of the holy glory where he'll come to his end. Again, I think this is parsing the matter further than the plain reading allows. Rather, when that time comes is only a generality that pertains to this overall series of events that ends chapter 11. But it's not meant to prophetically pinpoint a precise moment. Well, the next issue regards the archangel Michael, the great prince. For many theologically disposed reasons, Calvin says that Michael is actually Jesus or later admitted that perhaps he was Jesus' angelic representative. But the main reason for his position was that Calvin believed that the church had replaced Israel. So it wasn't possible for him to accept Michael as Israel's national spiritual advocate since God had permanently rejected Israel. Now, as of now, in Calvin's mind, Michael was Christ's advocate. He no longer protected Israel, but rather the Gentile church. Now, of course, that completely overturns scripture itself, as well as every description of Michael, who has him as the powerful archangel who regularly comes to Israel's aid. But what is even more interesting is that the verse itself plainly says, Michael, the great prince who champions your people. Whose people? Who's the angel addressing at this moment? Daniel. But once again, Calvin, as do almost all Christian denominations and the bulk of fundamental conservative scholars, he says that your people, Daniel's people, has been converted from Daniel's actual people, the Jews, to Gentile Christians. I don't think I have to spend any further time proving how downright intellectually dishonest it is to turn Scripture on its head in this kind of a way in order to uphold an institutionalized, anti-Semitic church agenda. Fortunately, there are those scholars like Walter Kaiser Jr., Robert Culver, who have had the courage to try to straighten out such long-held and deeply embedded false doctrines and along with the efforts of the recent Hebrew roots of Christianity and Messianic movements, I sense a real positive effect for change, for a change in attitude in this regard that's starting to happen within at least some segments of the traditional church. Well, anyway, verse 1 ends by saying that Mikhail stands up 
And then there will be a period of distress beyond parallel from the time that they, meaning Israel, became a nation until that moment. Now, stands up is what is called a judicial term. That is, standing up indicates rendering a verdict, which often includes carrying out a sentence. Thus, as regards Mikael, who operates under God's direction, Mikael will essentially carry out now the verdict that Yehovah has pronounced. And as the second verse says, the result will be that your people, Daniel, will be delivered. Now, although your ears might be weary of hearing it, I can't stress strongly enough that once again we face the issue of what people Mikael is protecting, what people are to be delivered you'd be hard-pressed to find a modern prophetic novel, a modern book on prophecy, or documented denominational doctrine that doesn't assume that in both cases the people are Christians and the Gentile church, and that Israel and the Jewish people play no role in this. And the reason that this is so critical to get right is that what we decide about it will form the basis for interpreting all end times prophecy teaching. And I'm here to tell you unequivocally that the people spoken about are not referring to the church. They're referring to Israel and the Jewish people. Why do I think that? Because it says so! I do think it's fair, however, to point out that the the earliest beginnings of this false replacement doctrine that can be traced back hundreds of years, there was no nation of Israel in existence. There was no real hope of one. And until 1948 of our era, A Gentile Christian would indeed have to be scratching their head full of doubts as to how God was going to save a nation and its citizens if it didn't exist. And there was no visible evidence whatsoever that it ever would. The solution? Church authorities said, well, we need to go back to our Bible, scratch out the word Israel and insert the word church. That's how we'll solve this problem. Well, turns out we needed a little bit more patience. A little bit more faith in God's promise of restoration for Israel. But strangely, even with Israel back as a vibrant Jewish nation, these same church institutions have steadfastly refused to re-examine their doctrines in this regard and they continue merrily along as though Israel had not returned just as prophesied. Therefore, the first verse of Daniel 12 clearly says that when Israel's darkest hour comes, God's most powerful archangel, Michael, will stand up as Israel's advocate and rescue them. It does not say he's going to rescue the church. Will the church be affected by this in a positive way and play a role? Oh, yes. Will we also experience some of the collateral damage that the Antichrist is going to mete out upon Israel? Oh, yes. Because it will have planet-wide consequences. And we read about that in the book of Revelation. But we're still not done with verse 1. Because we get thrown a curveball at the end of it. There it qualifies which citizens of Israel will be delivered. 
And it says it is those whose names are what? Written in the book. Hmm. There are basically two books, a figurative term of course, that are alluded to in the Bible, and they are kept by heavenly auditors. One is the book of life that holds the names of the righteous in God's sight. The other is a book that holds the names of the wicked who are condemned to eternal death. It is self-evident that in this passage the term book is referring to the book of life since it is this segment of Israel that God will deliver from this great catastrophe. Now one last thing about this first verse. We are told that the distress Israel will suffer knows no parallel. If we say that this tribulation already happened under Antiochus Epiphanes, and a lot of modern Bible scholars say that, and this is not referring to some future ruler in a future time, then we have a fundamental problem. Because records show that while Epiphanes was very hard on some Jews, he attempted no genocide and he attempted no exile. Rather, his goal was to eradicate worship of the God of Israel so that he could try to create a more or less single national religion. He primarily punished those Jews who didn't comply. Further, we would be hard-pressed to make Epiphany's persecution of the Jews equal or worse than what Israel suffered in Egypt or when Assyria decimated and then scattered the ten tribes. In fact, we had kings of Israel who did no worse to their own Hebrew people than what Epiphanes did. They set up false gods. Some of Israel's kings looted the temple. They decimated the priesthood and more. So the unmatched extent of this tribulation that is predicted in verse 1 has something to do with the future to Daniel and also to the future of Epiphanes. But verse 2 gives us no rest. Because here we get a fascinating statement that at some point many are going to awaken from their graves. And that some will arise to everlasting life, others to everlasting shame. Now if this is not speaking of resurrection, then I have no idea what else it could be referring to. The reality is that the Old Testament makes a handful of veiled implications, especially in a few Psalms, about resurrection from the dead, but nothing as plain and straightforward as Daniel 12.2. In fact, what mainstream Judaism believes today about the possibility of resurrection, resurrection comes from this passage. Now we could spend a great deal of time on this verse, but we won't do it. I do want to point out, however, that besides the matter, if this is actually speaking about bodily resurrection of the dead, which it must be, the other pressing issue is, who exactly is rising from their graves? See, there is a tendency of Christian scholars and prophecy teachers to disregard the literal text and the meaning of the first word of this passage. And that word in Hebrew is rabim. Instead, they interpret the passage as if the Hebrew word kol, kol, was used there. Rabim means many. Whole means all, every. In other words, almost all Bible commentators and prophecy instructors will say all, everybody is going to rise from their graves to be judged. That's not what it says. That is not what's written here. 
Rather, it says, many will arise. Many, but not all. How are the many chosen? Who remains asleep in the dust of the ground while the others arise? We're not told. And I'd rather not go into endless speculation over it. However, here are four reasonable possibilities, all of which faithfully express the context of the passage to one extent or another. First, it could mean a general resurrection at the end of days that will include everybody who's ever lived and died, Hebrew or Gentile. Second, a resurrection strictly confined to Israel that occurs around the end of this terrible period of tribulation, but which also leaves open the possibility of another separate resurrection of other people. Third, a resurrection only of the righteous dead, just as Christ is about to return. But later on, another resurrection of the wicked dead, who will be judged and destroyed eternally. And fourth, a resurrection of the righteous dead after Christ returns, and at the end of days, a separate resurrection of the wicked dead. Now, there are verses in the New Testament books that pulls us more in line with only a couple of these possibilities, but from the view that Daniel gives us, remember we're just studying Daniel here, from the view that Daniel gives us, any of these four are good and reasonable interpretations of the resurrection as it's proposed here. Now, verse 3 tells us that during this period of the most intense persecution that has ever been or ever will be visited upon Israel in history. Those who use their time wisely to explain to others the reality of what is happening and why. And those who work selflessly to point others towards true righteousness in the Lord, they will receive a glorious reward from God for their efforts. Once again, this is still speaking directly about Israel and the Jews. However, no doubt this will include those Christians who stand up for Israel and identify with Israel and with the God of Israel and refuse to be silent even if it means their excommunication from the church, even their death. I cannot help but quote Dr. Keel, that great conservative Christian scholar of the 19th century who says this so very articulately. These people are the intelligent who by instructing their contemporaries by means of word and deed have awakened them to steadfastness and fidelity to their confession in the times of tribulation and they have strengthened their faith. It also includes some who have in war sealed their testimony with their blood. Verse 4 is a command to Daniel to seal up the vision and the prophecy. Our complete Jewish Bible and a few other versions like the NAS say that Daniel is to conceal or he's to make secret what's been revealed to him. That is a poor translation of the Hebrew word satham. Satham which means to shut up or to close. It does not mean to make secret or to keep people from understanding. It means there's, there is no more to be added and nothing should be altered. That's what it means. Actually, what's going on here is that we have a Hebrew wordplay. Because... Verse 4 says, But you, Daniel, satham these words and chatham this book until the time of the end. You hear it? Satham and chatham. That's, that's why these two words were chosen. So the idea is that nothing ought to be added to this vision and prophecy and that its contents are verified and validated. They're sealed as the truth. 
And then, near the end, we learn that people will be running to and fro. This gives us the mental picture of anxiously, frantically searching. What are they searching for? Answers. Answers. Answers as to why things are as they are. How could it get like this? How do we fix it? Things are confused. They're spinning out of control everywhere in the world. And yet, the higher our technology, the greater our knowledge of secular things, the worse human affairs seem to get. The deeper we sink into depravity. That is because those who are running to and fro do not seek wisdom which comes only from God, they seek knowledge, which is from the minds of humans. Is it not fascinating that each and every decade that goes by in human history, science and reason supersede godly wisdom to a greater and greater extent. Even in our Christian institutions, We'll read book after book after book on everything from what heaven must be like to why good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. But the Bible, God's Word, is becoming less relevant. It's becoming more like a religious prop. What is contained within it is seen as maybe too difficult to understand. It's just too ancient to be meaningful or useful in our time. As those of the Hebrew Roots Movement know, those who study all the parts of the Bible are today seen as cultish. By the very church who says that the Bible is at the center of our faith but at the same time, who barely opens it. And usually it's only to prove a point in a sermon. Daniel's prophecy is again proving to be 100% accurate. Now verses 5 and 6 shift the conversation. Suddenly, two more beings appear to Daniel. One standing on each side of the riverbanks. So now there's three glorious beings and they begin to speak with one another. One of the new arrivals asks the one who's been speaking how long until the end of these wondrous things. We're given no hint as to the identities of these two spiritual beings. What are the wondrous things? It doesn't mean wondrous as in the sense of good and exciting and fun, I can tell you that. It means awesome. It means terrible. It means inexplicable things that are so far out of the realm of human imaginings. And verse 7 provides the answer to how long. And it is a time, times, and half time. Well, that helps. It matches perfectly, however, with what we read in Daniel 7.25. Because there it says, He will speak words against the Most High and try to exhaust the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will attempt to alter the seasons and the law. And the Holy Ones will be handed over to Him for a time, times, and half time. Now, back in Daniel 7.25, this was speaking of the little horn. And as we learned in our previous lesson, the little horn of chapter 7 can only be speaking of the future Antichrist who appears in the era of the second latter days in conjunction with Messiah's return. And this information about how long is so vital that the one who is speaking raises both hands towards heaven and swears by God that this is the truth, it will happen. It is rather typical 
to say that a time times and a half a time equals precisely three and one half years. I have real doubts about that. Shortly we're going to see some events measured by a precise number of days. So if the term time means a year, why not just say a year? Time, the term time, was not, so far as we know, and never has been, an alternative word for year. It is a unique expression of time in the Bible. And catch this, it is only associated with latter days events. And it's not clearly defined. There are hints in the book of Revelation that causes some to equate the time times and half a time to a period of precisely 42 months but there are a number of doubtful assumptions needed to reach that conclusion that the time times and half a time is speaking of measuring the amount of time concerning concerning the same event as the one that takes 42 months three and a half years it could very well be the time times and half a time is relative rather than precise. It could very well be that. It could also very well mean about a year. So that the approximate amount of time can be known but that there is a little flexibility in it. Not too much but a little wiggle room. So we don't have to wonder, however, if we're talking hours or decades or centuries. It's a short period of time. And just when the Antichrist, we're told, is on the verge of his achieving his goal of eradicating Israel, the end comes. Instead, the Antichrist gets destroyed. And that coincides with the completion of this period that's called a time, times, and half time. And because of all that we've been told, we know that this has been planned, it has been orchestrated, it has been brought about by the Lord's willpower and perfect timing. It's not random. Then in verse 8, Daniel says, I don't understand. Let me say something here to give us all a little bit of hope when we're studying Daniel. If he couldn't understand it, and they were using the language and the terms of his day, how are we to grasp it all? The only way to fully understand, and I want you to hear this carefully, please, the only way to fully understand unfulfilled prophecy is to be content to wait until it's fulfilled. <laughs> Then we can look back in awesome wonder at the literalness, at the precision of the prophets and of the faithfulness of God to his pronouncements. Daniel in verse 8 asks the angel the very question I'd ask him if I was standing there. Okay, but what's the outcome of all these things? I mean, it's very cool you've told me all this stuff, but what does it all wind up meaning? I mean, you said what's going to happen, but when all is said and done, how does it end up? How am I affected by this? How are my people? How's my family going to be affected by this? What's the world going to look like? What's life going to be like? And in verse 9, the answer is not the one Daniel hoped for. Go. That is, this conversation's ended, you're dismissed. And the angel repeats what he told Daniel moments before. Close up, seal up this prophecy until the time of the end. Well, I think since we now have a better understanding of the history of Antiochus Epiphanes and what this prophecy what of this prophecy rather that he accomplished and what only partially and what not at all 
that it becomes clear that the term the end of uh, the time of the end, pardon me, the time of the end points towards a terminating point in each of the two latter days. God wished for some of these revelations to be understood well by his people, other revelations not so much. And one can understand why the book of Daniel would have been so popular during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, who surely must have looked to the Jews as the exact fulfillment of everything spoken in those final paragraphs of the book of Daniel. And yet, once Epiphanes was dead and the Jews were still intact and they had not had genocide committed upon them, the more discerning among them must have known that more more lay ahead. How far ahead? Nobody knew. Well, verse 10 lays waste to the idea that Daniel, that what Daniel was given was to be kept a secret because the angel says that many shall be purified and made white and refined while the wicked shall simply go on being wicked. And those wicked will never come to a right understanding of Daniel. But the wise will. I want you to ask yourself this question. If you are a modern Bible scholar, a Bible teacher, a pastor, who teaches that Daniel is a fraud and a fairy tale, something that is not to be believed, let alone go to all the trouble to discern it, which side of that ledger do you fall on, according to verse 10? I can't be your judge, but I can read. And I can choose to trust or to reject. And if God says the wicked will never understand, but the wise in him will, I'll let you come to your own conclusions. This, you see, is a general description of the future and of the road leading up to the end. It is not a specific vision of the end. The reprobate mind will laugh, it will denigrate Daniel and the words of this messenger angel. Those washed in the living water of Messiah and saved by his blood will, however, seek wisdom from this book and grab hold of all we can. Well, as we near the end of the book, verses 11 and 12 can be most difficult. And in fact, I think at current, they're not fully answerable. Here the context is that the daily sacrificial offering, the tamid, at the temple is going to be stopped. And it will remain suspended for 1,290 days. And here's where the trouble really starts. Because depending on your theology... I have heard many a prophecy teacher say 1,290 days is three and a half years. No, it's not. No, it's not. If one uses the 30-day month, which is the standard biblical month, we have 43 months. We have three years and seven months, not three years and six months. And even if we try to divide the 1,290 days into a solar year, of 365.25 days, which wasn't in, even used even in the New Testament times, we wind up with 3.5 something years, or three years, six months, and a few days. And while that's a lot closer, still no cigar. The time is given to us in a precise number of days. It is about three and a half years, but not exactly. It's about 42 months, but it's not 42 months to the day. What boggles the mind is that we have a number of fine conservative scholars who say that the number of 1,290 is symbolic and it doesn't mean 1,290. It can mean any number of days. Well then, if you ask what is 1,290 symbolic of, their answer is, we don't know. 
Therefore, when next we're told that anyone who waits and arrives at 1,335 days will be blessed, that this too is a symbolic number, there's no way to calculate it. See, I don't see that as reasonable on any level. But rather, it is a response to trying to understand just how to put these puzzle pieces together and since they can't find a way, it's just dismissed as symbolism. My response is that the number of days is precise and it's real and it's true and I'm not entirely sure if this actually applied to when Epiphanes ordered a halt to the daily sacrifices before Judas the Maccabee started it up again or if it applies to the Antichrist in the end times or if it applies to both. There is good historical evidence that it was indeed 1,290 days that the sacrifice was suspended in Epiphany's era but not enough evidence that I could call it indisputable proof. However, there is something we can draw from this even if the timing can't be down to a single 24 hour period a day the time times and half a time apparently about three and a half years will be the most severe part of the tribulation period and thus in thus some in Christianity give at final three and a half years a label as the great tribulation The book of Daniel certainly seems to verify that at least from the standpoint of the greatest intensity that it will be about a three and one half year period of time. But not exactly. Some say that the 1,335 days is the actual time of the entire length of the last part of the tribulation period but that it will be shortened by the Lord to 1,290 days or no one, meaning no Jew, would survive. I must say this makes little sense to me. To say that God has always planned that the final part of the tribulation is going to be 1,335 days but at the same time has always planned to allow it to only go on for precisely 1,290 days, that's an oxymoron. I mean, this renders the, 300, the 1,335 days as meaningless since it was never going to happen in the first place. Well, verse 12 says, How blessed will be anyone who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Yeshua, in Matthew 24, seems to be tackling this same period as Daniel. And Christ says this in Matthew 24, 7-13. For peoples will fight each other. Nations will fight each other. There will be famines and earthquakes in various parts of the world. All this is but the beginning of the birth pains. At that time you will be arrested and handed over to be punished and put to death and all peoples will hate you because of me. At that time, many will be trapped into betraying and hating each other. Many false prophets will appear and they'll fool many people. And many people's love will grow cold because of increased distance from Torah. But whoever holds out till the end will be delivered. Verse 13 offers the perplexed and anxious final Daniel final comforting words go your way until the end comes and then you will rest and then rise for your reward at the end of days here once again we have two similar terms that mean something slightly different Daniel is to go his way until the end comes when he will die but then at the end of days he will arise for his reward if those two terms were meant to mean the same thing then we would have Daniel dying and rising on the same day the term the end means some terminating point during either of the two latter days eras while the term the end of days 
means what we typically call the end times or the end of the world, the end of human history. And what can be more plain than that the prophesied resurrection of the dead that we read of in verses 2 and 3 that seems to be selective rather than universal will include Daniel. As it says, you, Daniel, you will rest and rise. Meaning resurrection, of course. But when will he rise? At the end of days. The end of the world as we know it. So allow me to close our study of Daniel with this comforting thought for all of you who have been made righteous by the blood of the Lamb. When we awaken, think about this, when we awaken from our slumber in the dust, we too will arise and we will see Daniel who is awakening from his long sleep. We will meet King David who awakens at the same instant we do. We will have the opportunity to see Moses and Aaron who spent the last many we spent the last many years reading about. I mean, what greater incentive could there be for us then? than to spend the remainder of our days as those wise ones who strives to turn many to righteousness by speaking and living out God's love and His salvation so that when we arise, we will also see our spouses and our parents and our children and our grandchildren. And of course, we will finally get to see Daniel's and our precious Son of Man, Yeshua, our Messiah, face to face, our King forever. This ends our study of the book of Daniel.